0: Last two weeks we've been talking about the heart of the gospel. And I have reminded us that the the clear note that sounded <clears throat> by Martin Luther in the Reformation was that justification is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. There is no other requirement, there is nothing else needed, there's nothing we need to do or Nothing we can do to add to or enhance the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And two weeks ago, we looked very clearly at the gospel truth that justification is by faith alone, plus no other effort on my part. Of course, that presupposes genuine saving faith. And last week, we looked at what is saving faith, and we studied the, the uh, statement of James where he says, Do you believe? Well, don't break your arm patting yourself on the back. The demons also believe. And it doesn't do them any good. They tremble. Because mere intellectual agreement with the facts of the gospel will not result in a new birth and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God in regeneration. It requires a faith that turns one's life over to God in total trust in what He has done through His Son on the cross of Calvary that I believe with all my heart that Jesus died for me and I am convinced that I am a sinner in need of that grace and I cling to the cross and I give my life to Him and commit myself to Him without reservation." The Scripture says that is saving faith. And if you make that step of faith that is a total commitment of your life to Jesus Christ, that He is faithful to forgive and cleanse you and to give you eternal life and to seal you with the Holy Spirit eternally. But then, of course, the question arises in the mind of any thoughtful believer, so what do I do about sin as a Christian? I think I asked this group last week, I said don't raise your hand, but how many of you have never sinned since you became a Christian? Don't raise your hand now, you'll make yourself a liar, and that's going to be one of your first ones. (laughs) Because every Christian, at some time or another, falls short of God's glory, and we become aware of it by the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we know that we've done wrong. And we know that we've offended God, we have violated his will for us and and we ask the question, "What do we do about that and and i as you know, I began this this whole series as a as kind of a a biblical response to a booklet that was left on the windshield of cars after our ten o'clock service um you know the Bible teaches that the Catholic Church is true, and it's like a hundred and i don't know thirty or forty pages of teaching from Catholicism, and and I had people come to me and say, wow, this is, you know, really well done, Uh, got some good scripture in it, I mean, how do we respond to this? And so, I'm I'm responding, (laughs) and I'm taking us back to the hallmark of our faith, and I want to say to you that the Protestant and Evangelical churches live under a cloud, a hangover, from our ultimate heritage before Luther. We live under a cloud of Catholic thinking, not because it's Catholic, but because it's human nature. To believe that if I do something wrong, I've got to pay for it. Somehow I've got to do something to make up for it. I've got to come to God and I've got to somehow atone now that I'm a Christian, now that I've been forgiven, now I've messed up. Now what? Well, I've got to do some kind of penance. We don't call it that. And you don't come to my office and, you know, I throw this curtain up and you kind of talk through at me and and I let you confess and then I absolve you of your sin, and, you know, and you go away and I say, do this and do this and you'll be fine. We don't go through that formality, but there's this sneaking feeling in our heart somewhere that now we've offended God and we have to, we have to make up for that somehow. We've got to do something. And if I don't do something, God's going to get me. And, and that's the kind of feeling that develops. And what is the biblical answer to that? How do we handle that kind of issue in our lives? And that's the subject of my message this morning. What about guilt, confession, and repentance in the life of a Christian? I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. While you're doing that, I'm going to find a throat lozenge. We hide them in the organ bench so both of us can make music from time to time. First John chapter 1, verse 5, John says, And this is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light... We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. I want you to pay attention to that phrase, because I'm going to come back to it. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's why you shouldn't raise your hand. If you say that you have no sin, you're in deception. you got blinders on. You're missing something, because... There's a lot of stuff in our heart that takes a lifetime to deal with, and no one can make that statement. But it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we're ever so audacious to say, I have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His truth is not in us. No one can ever say, I've not sinned. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is the propitiation. Remember what that word means? Used three times in the New Testament. It's kind of hard to say but it's very easy to grasp in in the understanding of it. Jesus Christ is the one who satisfies the wrath of God against sin. He is the one who takes the the wrath out of God's heart with regard to sin and imputes to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is the one who has met the requirement of the law and, and appeased and appealed to the mercy of God because of His sacrifice. Now, the Scripture says in verse 7 and in verse 9, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. John was writing in Greek. And John, in the Greek language, had a choice of verbs. He could have picked different verb tenses. But he chose one to use in this passage to describe continuous action. And I want us to get a handle around this this morning because the imagery here in in 1 John chapter 1 is really very, very special and very precious if we understand it. It's saying to us that the blood of Jesus, His Son, continually cleanses us from all sin there is an experience there is a, a, a behavior of God in the life of a Christian that can only be described as continual cleansing some of you have heard me use this illustration before in fact one person after the 8 o'clock service said I heard you many years ago give that illustration and she said I've never forgotten it. it has been such a great reminder and a blessing in my life if you've heard it before tune in it may stick this time for for good if you haven't heard it before hopefully this will bless you years ago i was walking in the woods at Tacoma falls where i went to college and there was a waterfall on the campus and i had hiked up to the top of the waterfall and i was standing there uh, near the edge of the creek and i was looking at the waterfall right where the water went over the rocks plunged 186 feet in a clear drop and landed in a pool at the bottom. The creek was only a couple of feet deep, so there's about this much water that is constantly flowing over those rocks at the end. I don't know if you've, if you've ever done that. How many of you have been to Niagara Falls? See Niagara Falls. You know, there's a lot of water going over there. And that big horseshoe fall, it makes all the crashing sound, all the foam at the bottom. But the same thing happens. However deep the creek is, or the river, however deep it is, that body of water comes right to the end and flows over. I mean, it doesn't kind of thin out and get real thin right at the end and just a trickle. It, the whole creek falls off the edge. And you stand there and you watch that, and it's an amazing thing. And, and you will look at the rocks at the edge of a waterfall, and here's what you notice. And it has to be rocks, by the way, because if it were dirt, it would be long gone. It has to be rocks, and you look at the rocks, and what you notice is they're clean. In fact, they're probably smooth. Now, there might be some algae or some stuff on the downward side of it where the the volume has already begun to crash over. But right on the edge, right on the top, right on the surface, those rocks are clean, and they're usually polished, and nothing can stick there. Not a grain of sand, not a pebble, not a branch. Now, nothing can stay on those rocks. In fact, people can't even stay on those rocks. Uh, there was the occasion at Tekoa, a tragedy a number of years before that occasion, when I was up there where a student had gotten into the stream and got too close and went over the edge and plunged to his death. Nothing can cling to those rocks. That constant flow of the water cleanses those rocks 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 52 weeks out of the year, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, those rocks are cleaned by that constant flow of water. And friends, I want you and, and, and me to understand this morning... That the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ and put our trust in Him and receive the payment that He has made on the cross for our sins, from that day forward in the presence of Almighty God, we are continually cleansed from all sin by the blood of Jesus just like those rocks at the edge of the waterfall, the blood of Jesus is always flowing on our behalf. It is always sprinkled in the heavenly tabernacle. No sin can cling to our life and mar our appearance before God. We always have a clean standing. Don't ever forget that. You're always clean in the presence of God. If you're His child, if you have been born again, genuinely born again by sincere faith in Jesus Christ and He has sealed you unto the day of redemption with the Holy Spirit of God, put His Spirit within you and regenerated you. You stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and you are continually cleansed from all sin. I was reading a book by A.B. Simpson this past week and he had an illustration in here on Justification. And I just want to read you this one paragraph. A.B. Simpson is writing 100 years ago, but he says this. A Scottish evangelist told me this story. When he was a lad, his father was a shepherd. One morning, a lamb was dead. Another lamb was also motherless. So, this young fellow who eventually became the evangelist asked his father to give the little orphan to the mother who had just lost her lamb. His father told him she will not have it. He tried again and again, but she would only run away from this orphan lamb. At last, the father took the dead lamb and removed its skin, placed it on the living one. Instantly, the mother ran to it and began to caress it and received it as her own. So God covers us with the righteousness of Jesus and loves us with the same love He has for His own Son, seeing us only in Him and accepting us as His very sons and daughters for Jesus' sake. We are covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have taken on His person as it were you know that sounds like oh that's an interesting story out of a book by some guy a hundred years ago but one of the fellows in the eight o'clock services he was leaving he said you know that story you read he said my father did that one time with a calf and he covered the calf in the skin of, a, of the dead calf and the mother and the calf the orphan calf bonded there is a living illustration of what happens to us in jesus christ when we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and put into Him and covered by Him as if we were Him. Friends, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we need to understand that God has accepted us in Him and that the blood of Jesus His Son constantly cleanses us from all sin. But what do we do about sin? What do we do about sin in our lives as a Christian? I want to bring you a couple of illustrations, some from the Old, some from the New Testament. And I just want to remind you of these. One of them is David and Bathsheba. Now, if if ever you wanted to point to a, a, a sin in the Bible, an event in the Bible that kind of took it all in, you can look at David and Bathsheba because everything is in that story. You know, the armies are out to war. David is uh, out wandering around on his roof one night. Bathsheba is down below somewhere taking a bath where he can see her. I, I don't want to go into what all's going on there, um, but, but stuff's going on. But anyway, you know the story. And David gets involved with her and then finds out she's pregnant. And now we've got to do the cover up. So he brings Uriah home, her husband, from the battle and brings him home giving him a little leave family leave you know hoping that he'll start a family while he's home but Uriah is so noble he won't go near his wife's house he says all my all my colleagues all my fellow warriors are out there fighting the battle i'm not going to go home and be with my wife when they're out in the trenches and so he's so noble he won't do that so now david's got a problem and so he sets it up with the captain of the army, and he says, next time you're in battle, now they fought hand-to-hand, sword-to-sword, and they stayed together and helped each other, and that's how they overcame the enemy. He says, next time you're in battle, put Uriah on the front lines, and when they attack around him, everybody withdraw. So Uriah gets killed. And so, uh, you know, David thinks he's he's good and clean here, and uh, man, he's gotten through this situation okay, because no one knows whether Uriah went home or not when he was Visiting and and, all, and on and on it goes, and so time goes away. Not not a lot of time, but some time goes along, and then one day Nathan the prophet shows up at David's uh, place, the king at the kingdom, and and he says, uh, David, he says, uh, you're the king, and I need to tell you a story. He says there was this rich guy, and this rich guy had everything he needed. In fact, he had a, he had flocks and herds, he had tons of lambs, he had tons of of every kind of thing he could need. And he had some company coming, and uh, he didn't want to take one of his own lambs. So there was this poor guy over here that only had one lamb. <clears throat> and he went over there to this poor guy's house, and he stole the lamb and, and, and took it for his own, and took it home and slaughtered it and served his guest. And David is listening to this. David is a man after God's own heart. And David's listening to this, and David says, show me that man. Give me that man. I will deal with him right now. I'm not putting up with this kind of stuff in my kingdom. And Nathan looks him right in the eye and points his finger and he says, You're the guy. David, you've got everything you could ask for. You're the king of Israel. You've got everything you could possibly need. And you took Uriah's only lamb. You took his wife. And then you murdered him. You're the man. David, wow, he came under huge conviction. How did God deal with David, and how did David deal with God in that situation? Well, I want to rewind the tape a little bit back to the early chapters of Samuel, when uh, Saul has has finally blown it with God. I mean, Saul has just Saul just never got it, and uh, finally, God says to Samuel, the the uh, the prophet, He says, Samuel, He says, I, I'm done with Saul. I'm going to remove the kingdom from him. But He says, There's a man after my own heart who's one of the sons of Jesse, and I want you to go out, and I want you to anoint him, and I'll show you who he is. Go to Jesse's house, and I'll show you who he is. So, all these scriptures, by the way, are in your outline, so you can look them up when you get home. If I read them all, we'd be here the rest of the afternoon. But, David, so, so Samuel goes to Jesse's house and says to Jesse, um, God wants to anoint one of your sons as king, so bring me your sons. And Jesse, one and the other, and God says to each one, you know, Samuel says, oh, that guy looks good. How about him, God? And God says, no, no, that's not who I have in mind. So finally, they go through seven of them. You know, seven sons. Everyone stands before Samuel. Samuel looks at him and says, God, he looks kind of good to me. God says, no, I know who I want, and that's not him. And finally, there's nobody else. And Samuel looks at Jesse and says, Jesse, you got any more kids? I mean, all seven of these are not the ones the Lord wants. And Jesse says, well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's David. I mean, he's the youngest guy. He's out with the sheep, which, which kind of meant, he, you know, he was the 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 young guy in the family. He's got responsibility, but not great responsibility. I mean, he's given responsibility for the sheep, but his other sons are warriors, you know, and they're out there defending Israel, and all that kind of stuff. And here's David out with the sheep. And Samuel says, well, bring him over here because I, these aren't the guys. And when David shows up, God says, I judge a man by his heart, not by his outward appearance. I know what's in David's heart. David is a man after my own heart. As soon as Samuel lays eyes on him, God says, That's the one. Anoint him king. This is a man after my own heart. You read the Scriptures, and if you follow the story through, you find that even after the sin with Bathsheba, even after David's life, even after he's dead and off the scene, when God is dealing with Jeroboam, God says some some amazing things uh, to Jeroboam. And uh, I want to read one of those for you. Um, He says, God comes to Jeroboam and He says, "Um, You have not been like My servant David, who kept My commandments and followed Me with all of his heart to do only that which was right, in my sight. This is after all this stuff with Bathsheba. This is David is off the scene. God's still saying he's the man after my own heart. In fact, in the book of Acts, when Peter is preaching his great sermon, he talks about David and quotes him as a man after God's own heart. How do you explain a man after God's own heart getting into such a disastrous situation with Bathsheba? But you can see the heart of this when you look at Psalm 51. And you can turn to that in your scriptures or read it later, but let me just read you some section from that. In Psalm 51, listen to David. This is a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. And David says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness." according to the greatness of your compassion, and blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Now, you know, David had uh, David knew it before Nathan showed up with the story of the Lamb. Dave, David knew his sin. It's just that Nathan brought it into the open and called it what it was, and David said... Yes, I am the man. That's exactly right. I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only I have sinned. That's an amazing statement. I wonder what Uriah would have to say about that. I wonder what Bathsheba had to say about it. I wonder what Joab had to say about it. Who was his conspirator, a co-conspirator, I wonder what the nation of Israel had to say about it. What, what did other people have to say? David at this moment is looking before God alone. He has hurt and wounded and damaged a lot of people. But in this moment, he is focused on God. And he says, God, ultimately it is you and you only that I have sinned against and done what is evil in your sight. You are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. God, you're right on. You put your finger right on the spot. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin my mother conceived me. David is confessing his human nature in sinfulness from birth. And he says, you desire truth in the innermost being. The hidden part, you'll make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Very fascinating statement. It's fascinating because we're told when Samuel anointed David king that the Spirit of God came upon him. And in the Old Testament, it was not possible for the Holy Spirit to indwell a person because that waited for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that removed our sin and made regeneration possible. David was not indwelt by the Spirit of God, but he was covered with the Spirit of God. He was clothed with the Spirit of God. And here he is... After the confrontation with Nathan and the awareness that he has sinned so greatly in the sight of God, and he prays this prayer, Do not take your spirit from me. David still has the Spirit of God. He's still clothed with the Spirit of God. One of the things that you and I need to recognize whenever we get into mischief and sin and things we shouldn't be into, is if you're truly a child of God, you're taking the Holy Spirit with you everywhere you go. You're dragging Him into it. Because He's there. He does not leave you. He certainly doesn't vacate your life. You take Him with you. And it grieves his heart. This is what David is waking up to. But David in his in his brokenness is saying, God, your spirit is so important to me. Don't take him away from me. I don't want our fellowship, our relationship, oh God, to be broken. David is grieving now before a holy God because he has offended God and he wants to make it right. And notice what he says. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. He didn't say restore your salvation. He said, restore the joy of it. Bring the joy back to my life. And he says, then I'll preach the gospel again. I'll teach transgressors your ways. Sinners will be converted. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. And then notice what David says, you do not delight in sacrifice. Or in burnt offering. Or I would gladly give it. Friends, when we think we can do something for God to make up for what we've done. You know the old foxhole prayer. If you get me out of this, I'll do that. That doesn't work. It doesn't get it. Lord, how about if I just give some extra money to the church? Will that make up for what I did? No. No. You don't delight in burnt offering or sacrifice. There is nothing I can do to make it okay with God. And David says, I would gladly do it if I could, but there's nothing I can do. What does God want? He wants a broken and contrite heart, a broken spirit, and a contrite heart. He wants to know that I know that I have let him down, and it grieves me. That's what he wants to know. And when he knows that, with that, God is satisfied. He is completely satisfied. And David says, Then, O God, you you will delight in righteous sacrifices, burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. In other words, then I can serve you with a clear conscience spent a lot of time with that, but I wanted you to see that from beginning to end, God calls David a man after his own heart. God never vacates David's life. He never takes his spirit away from him. Even in the case of Bathsheba and Uriah, God is with David. And when David is convicted of his sin, he comes before God in brokenness and says, God, you're right and I'm wrong. And I need you to cleanse me. Another interesting thing is when Peter denies Jesus. Um, It's a very fascinating place where Jesus is talking with his disciples at the Last Supper. And we just uh, took that supper and in that occasion of that event, uh, Jesus is talking to them and Peter pipes up and says, Lord, you know what? I'm with you all the way. I I am totally sold out to you. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, you don't have any idea what's going on in your life. Satan has desired to have you, that he can sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to Peter? Peter, you don't even know the spiritual battle that's raging around you. Read read the verses when you get home. Read them all. You don't even know what's going on around you. Satan has desired to have you, to sift you like wheat. But he says, I have prayed for you. And these words are, are crucial To what we're getting at this morning. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus says to Peter, when you've turned around. Not if, but when. How can Jesus make such a statement? Because Peter's not holding Peter. Jesus is holding Peter. Jesus knows He's able to make him stand. Who are you, Paul says in Romans chapter 14, who are you to judge a man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Doesn't mean he won't falter, doesn't mean he won't stumble, but Psalm 37 says the steps of a righteous man are ordered by the Lord, and even though he stumbles, he will not fall headlong to disaster, because the Lord upholds him with His right hand. God holds me. God keeps me. God kept Peter. When you have turned again, go and strengthen your brothers. Peter says, oh, thank you, Lord. I appreciate your prayers and everything. But you know what? I'm a tough guy, and I'm going to hang in there till the end. And Jesus said, Peter, you have no idea what you're talking about. Before the rooster crows in the morning, you'll deny me three times this night. And Peter thinks to himself, yeah, right. He just doesn't know. But then we get the picture in the courtyard, Luke chapter 24, I believe it is, or 23. We get the picture in the courtyard. Jesus is being interrogated. He's being beaten. He's being scourged. Peter's over there by the fire in, in eyesight. You know, and he's kind of hanging out on the fringes. And finally, somebody looks at him and says, Peter. I mean, he doesn't know, doesn't, she doesn't know it's Peter. He says, you look like one of those guys that was a disciple. He says, no, I don't know who this guy is. Okay, a little time goes on. He says, you know what? you really do look like one of those disciples. No, I don't know who this guy is. I don't have any idea what you're talking about. Finally, one of the servant girls there says, you know something, you talk just like him. You sound like one of these Galilean guys. I know you're one of those guys. And he begins to curse and swear. And he says, I've never heard of this man. I don't know what you're talking about. And and you can tell, you know, you can just see the scene. I mean, Peter's kind of getting loud there around the fire. and and, And all of a sudden, a rooster begins to crow. And Peter realizes. You know how when you're caught in the middle of something, you kind of look to see if anybody's looking? Peter looks, and Jesus is looking right at him. Looking right at him. And Peter, oh no. And the scripture says he goes out and he weeps bitterly. Later, the resurrection's occurred. Some time has passed. Jesus shows up on the seaside one morning. They have breakfast together. Go read the whole story. It's pretty interesting. But they're having breakfast. Jesus looks at Peter. And he says, Peter, do you love me? (laughs) Peter knows where that's coming from. Lord, you know I do. Peter's a broken man now. He's been humbled by the Lord. Okay. A little while later, Peter, are you buddies with me? Are you my friend? Lord, you know I do. Okay. Finally, he he comes back and he says, Peter... Are you really even my friend? I'll go to the death with you. I'll never deny you. I'll be there. All the disciples will leave. But I'll... Oh, Peter says, Oh, God, you're just getting to my heart. Man. I'm not going on the line like that again. You know my heart. Uh, He didn't think he did earlier, but now he knows. You know my heart. You know the best of my knowledge, I love you. Jesus says, Okay, feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. God is giving him a ministry. He's investing in him responsibility in the kingdom. This traitor, this liar, this denier. Why? Because Jesus is holding Peter and Peter's a broken man now and he gets it there's no loss of relationship Peter belonged to Jesus but you know sometimes when we sin there's consequences that even the freedom from the penalty of sin cannot erase I'm just going to mention Moses. You can go read about David numbering the Israelites. But I'm going to mention Moses. You remember when Moses was with the Israelites in the wilderness and they came and they didn't have any water. And God says to Moses, Moses, go strike the rock and water will come out of that rock. And it will feed the Israelites. It will give them drink. Their thirst will be satisfied. So Moses goes out in front of the Israelites and he says, this is what the Lord says. I'm going to strike this rock with the rod of God, the, the rod that he's given me, and, and all your your thirst is going to be quenched. And he strikes the rock in the name of the Lord and water comes gushing out of it. And, and and this river begins to form and the people can drink and all their their thirst is satisfied. And it's like, wow, this is amazing stuff. But they've got a short memory because a little later down the road, all of a sudden... Uh, I mean, it's been some years. They're out of water again, and what do they do? They complain. They say we're thirsty, and we're out in this desert, and God doesn't care anything about us. And Moses is thinking, man, haven't you gotten it yet? You I mean you've gotten manna every day? You got water from a rock. The the bitter waters of Mara were made sweet. You got you wanted meat, and you got quail. I mean, what do you want? So he goes to God, and he says, God, these people are always grumbling and complaining. What do I do? And God says, I want you to take. The rod of the Lord in your hand, I want you to go out in front of that rock and I want you to speak to it. And in the front of the Israelites, I want you to say to that rock, bring forth water. And so Moses goes out and he gets all the Israelites together and he goes out in front of the rock. And he says, how long will you stubborn, sorry, lousy people, you're murmuring, complaining, all you do is frustrate me all day long. How long will you wear out me and God? And he strikes the rock twice. And the water comes flowing out. And God says, Moses, I didn't tell you to strike the rock. I told you to speak to the rock. And because you have profaned my name in front of Israel, you will never set foot in the promised land. Can you imagine how that felt for Moses? And later on we find that God says this, because you did not believe my word. In other words, God was trying to get a point across, and in doing that, Moses messed something up. And this is important for us in forgiveness. Because that rock (coughs) was a symbol of Jesus Christ who was smitten for sin once and for all. And ever after, all we have to do to receive the refreshing stream is to ask. And Moses struck the rock again and destroyed that beautiful imagery. And profane the name of God. And we read toward the end of Deuteronomy, God says to Moses, He says, Moses, and this is a very, very kind of intimate, precious moment. He says, Moses, I want you to go up on top of Mount Nebo. And I want you to look at Canaan. And I'm going to show you a picture of all that I'm going to give to the Israelites. And he says, and then die there. And I'll take you into my presence but you will never set your foot in the promised land because you profaned my name before Israel in the rock. Do do you see what's going on there? Moses has had to pay a price, but it has not disrupted his fellowship and intimacy with God. And God, not many people get this privilege It it is a privilege, maybe not for some of you, but but it's kind of a privilege. He says, "Moses, go up on Nebo and look, and then die. I'm going to take you into my presence. I'm going to take you into my presence. Isn't that amazing?" Who was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Bible 101. Moses and Elijah. It's interesting that Moses did end up standing in the Promised Land, on the Mount of Transfiguration, in the presence of Jesus Christ, where he had been living in the presence of God from the moment he left Nebo in his spirit. God wasn't angry with Moses anymore. God wasn't miffed with him. Get out of my sight. I never want to see you again. Moses was his dear friend. God spoke to Moses the way a man speaks to his friend. And God took Moses into his presence from the top of Nebo. And one day let him stand in the promised land on another mountain with Jesus face-to-face in the glory of the transfiguration. Sometimes there's a penalty, but God loves us immensely. I want us to understand something this morning. Please get this, because this, this this is the crux of the message. It's very important. Once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, and receive the payment that He made for our sins on the cross, we do not ever again need to confess or ask for forgiveness in order to be released from the penalty of sin. Did you hear me? The penalty of sin, the judicial judgment of sin, Jesus paid for, and all of your sin is forgiven past, present, and future. You will never again the rest of your life need to be released from the penalty of sin. Jesus paid it all. It's a done deal forever. Forgiveness and confession and repentance in the life of a believer is in order to walk in relationally in harmony with God, in intimacy and communion of spirit. It is not a matter of judicial punishment. It is a matter of keeping a right relationship. How can two walk together unless they're in agreement? And friends, this goes for any relationship. It goes for husband and wife. It goes for parents and children, children and their parents. It goes for friendships. Friendships. When you grieve or wound your friend or your spouse or your child or your parent, when you've done something that has hurt them, if you live in a covenant relationship and commitment in Christ, I have to be careful here because human analogies break down and, and we're pretty fickle people, but God keeps His covenants. So let me come back to that in a minute. But you do not break the relationship. But you certainly can strain the fellowship. And you can create tension in the relationship that is not going to get fixed until whoever wronged the other one owns up to it and confesses and asks forgiveness you know if if my sons offend me or i offend them i can't change the fact that they have my name and they're my sons that's like permanent there's nothing that can ever be done all i got to do is test our dna <laughs> There's nothing that can ever be done to change that relationship. But you can sure mess up the friendship. You can mess up the fellowship. You can bring tension if you've offended one another in some way until the party who has caused the offense is willing to go and say, when I did thus and so, I was wrong." And I need to ask You to forgive me and to release me from that. I want to restore our fellowship. When we walk with God and we sin against Him, as David acknowledged against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, when we have sinned against God, we must go and rectify that breach in the relationship and, and reestablish the communion and the intimacy. And that kind of confession, I want to give you some definitions here that are really important. Confession doesn't mean you go sit in front of a little booth and talk about your sin. It means that you come to agreement with God about your sin. The Greek word for confession is homologeo. Homo means to make the same as or to be the same. And logeo means to speak. The, the word for confession, homologeo, means to speak the same thing God speaks. It means to to agree with Him. Lord, You're right. I am the man. You're right. I agree with You. I, I see it from Your perspective. And I am with you a hundred percent i confess that you are true now in human relationships the other person could be wrong too but in god's relationship with god guess what friends he is never wrong he's never the one that oopsed. he's never the one that caused the problem He's always right. The only thing you can do with God is go to Him and confess. But let me give you a little secret about confession. Confession of a broken and contrite spirit completely and 100% owns your own stuff. What do I mean by that? Let me give you an example of a really bad confession if you're going to ask forgiveness of your spouse. I'm really sorry, honey, that I got so angry with you the other day, but you know, every time you do that, it just makes me mad. That's like saying, yeah, I got upset, but you're so stupid. You just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And, and, and what do you expect? Does that remind you of somebody else? They laughed in the first service, too. You know why you're laughing? Because it's true. Okay. And and you go back to the Garden of Eden and does doesn't this sound familiar? Yeah, I ate the fruit. But you know that woman you made? Huh? Yeah, well, she gave it to me. So don't blame me. Yeah, I did it, but don't blame me. It's her fault. And and you can just see, you know, God turning to look at Eve. Now he didn't buy this for a moment, but he just looks at Eve to see what she'll say and said, well, yeah. I did, but you know that snake you made? Well, he gave it to me. Well, so she's passing the buck, and and nobody wants to accept the blame here. That is not confession. Okay, I don't care what somebody does to you. If you get angry, that's your problem. Own it. Well, you just drive me nuts. No, you get nuts. They act the way they act, and you react badly. Own it. It's your problem. You know, I, I, <clears throat> through the years, I, I've had guys come to me and say, you know, I have such a struggle with lust. But good grief, these women dress in such a way. It's just, oh, I just can't help it. No, own it. You've got the problem. You are lusting. That's your problem. Own it and accept it. If someone's dressed inappropriately, that's their problem. But if you're lusting, that's your problem. Don't say, oh, they made me do it. No, they didn't make you do it. You've got an impure mind. That's why you're where you are. That's your problem. Own it and accept it. See, we come to God a lot of times in confession, and we don't say the same thing God says. We say, yeah, God, I kind of messed up here, but here's all the contingencies. Here's all the reasons. And God's not wanting to hear the reasons. Don't misunderstand. I'm not saying you can't talk to him about it, but I'm just saying, get real. God wants you to say, you know what? I sinned against you. Jesus said, you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. He wasn't talking about going to doctrine 101. You finish this class and you'll be free. That's not what he meant. What Jesus said was, when you look in the mirror and you confess that what you see and what God sees is the same thing, you will be free. When you acknowledge, this is my fault. This is my doing. I have done this thing. God says, when you, when you deal with it that way before me, That's confession. You and I are on the same page now. Repentance. The definition of repentance very simply is to change your mind. But in practice, what it means is you're headed that way and you turn around and go this way. You say, God, I'm doing this wrong. It's wrong of me to do this. I confess it. I don't like it. You're right. I'm going this way. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to follow You. I'm turning around in my heart. I'm turning around. And now, Lord, I want to ask You. I want to ask You to release me. Forgive me. Restore our intimacy. You do not need to be forgiven in terms of judgment. For in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. But you need to have your intimacy with God restored by coming back and getting on the same page with Him. And let me tell you, there's some dangers if you don't do that. One of them is, uh, John tells us this in his first letter, uh, read the first letter of John through and and check this out this afternoon. Um, John tells us in his first letter, he says, Beloved, if our heart condemns us, we are lacking confidence before God. What do we mean by that? You've sinned and you know you've sinned. And now you feel guilty. You feel guilty because the Holy Spirit has tapped you on the shoulder and says, You know that thing you did? I was with you. I saw the whole thing. You know it? Well, we need to talk about it. And you say, I don't want to talk about it. And, you know, so every time you go to pray, what does God do? Well, God, I've come to talk to you today. Good. I've been waiting for this. We need to talk about this. I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about something else well, um, it's going to be kind of hard because I really need to talk about this and I don't want to go much further till we do. So you get in a situation where you're feeling guilty and you feel this relationship strained before God. So now now you've sinned in some way and you're headed down the freeway and now this car has crossed the line and it's headed for you head on. And and you need to pray, oh God, save me, I'm about to get crunched here. And, And your conscience says... You can't talk to God. You got this sin in the way, and He's not going to hear you. Now, I want to tell you something. That's not true. That's not true. You're His child. He loves you. He is ready to hear you even in that moment. You can cry out to Him. Peter didn't have to confess all of his sins when he was about to go down in the waves. All he had to do was say, Lord, save me, I'm perishing. And Jesus reached down his hand and grabbed hold of him. You can still pray. The problem is your heart tells you you can't. The problem is you feel guilty. The problem is you've got a strained relationship with God. And and you can't be free in your spirit with the Lord until you deal with that thing. God sees you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But you know in your walk with Him, there's something out of whack and it's got to get fixed and you've got to deal with it. And if you don't deal with it, you're going to have a hard time having a prayer life. You're going to have a hard time feeling the intimacy of God in your life. You're going to have a hard time hearing Him. And you're going to have a hard time talking to Him. Because just like you, when you get at odds with your spouse or you get at odds with your parents or, or you've wounded a friendship... And now you, know, you feel awkward around each other. You don't know what to say. The air is strained. you got to get it clean, man. you got to sit down and, and confess. you got to bring it out. you got to own your stuff. you got to say, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. You know, I heard a formula a long time ago, and I don't necessarily buy into formulas, but this is a good way to put it. When you go to confess to another person, when you go to confess to God, but when you go to talk to another person that you've offended, It's better just to simply say, God has shown me how wrong I was when I did thus and so, and how much it hurt you, and I am really very sorry. It grieves me that I caused you pain. Forget what they did. Just forget it. It's not your problem. That's between them and God, but you get it clear. And when you go to God and say, God, I agree with you. I acknowledge the truth. I have sinned. This is wrong. And I need you to cleanse me just want to read in conclusion a word and then we're done. Young Christian, if you want to enjoy the peacefulness of a complete forgiveness and a divine cleansing of sin, see to it that you correctly use the confession of sin. This is Andrew Murray. In true confession of sin, you have one of the most blessed privileges of a child of God and one of the deepest roots of a powerful spiritual life. For this end, let your confession be a precise one. The continued, uncertain confession of sin does more harm than good. It's much better to say to God, I have nothing to confess, than to say, I don't know what to confess. Begin with one sin. Let it come to a complete harmony between God and you concerning this one sin. Let it be fixed with you that this sin is, through confession, placed in God's hands. You will experience that in such confessions there is both power and blessing. Let the confession be a righteous one. Deliver up the sinful deed to be laid aside. Deliver up the sinful feeling with trust in the Lord. Confession implies renunciation, the putting off of sin. Give it up to God who forgives you of it and cleanses you from it. Do not confess if you're not prepared or not heartily desired to be free from it confession has value only if you're giving up your sin to god let the confession be one of trust depend entirely on god to actually forgive you and cleanse you from sin continue in confession by casting the sin you desire to be rid of into the fire of god's holiness until your soul has the firm confidence that god takes it on his own account to forgive and to cleanse it is the faith that god and jesus actually frees us from sin Brothers and sisters, do you understand it now? What must you do with sin? With every sin, bring it in confession to God and give it to God. God alone takes away sin. Friends, in Jesus Christ, the sting of sin, the sting of death, the fear of sin has all been taken away. Carrie was saying earlier, we we have a cure for death. Isn't that great? And we have a cure for fear. Perfect love cast out fear. We can go to God in Jesus Christ to the throne of grace and find grace to help and mercy in time of need because we have one who understands. Our sins have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. We are judicially released. The gavel has landed on the judge's bench and the verdict is not guilty. Now, You can talk to God from the heart about your problems and own up to them and He will help you. He will bless you. He will fill you with His Spirit. He will release you from sin's power. That's the beauty of confession as a child of God. You can walk with Him in harmony and agreement and in fellowship. Praise His name. Free from the law, of oh happy condition. Brother, we're late. I think we'll close without a song. Just give this to the Lord. But I just want you to think for a moment as we pray. Are you up to date with God? Don't run from Him. He's the best friend you've ever had on this planet. And for all eternity, don't run from Him. He's already released you from the penalty. He's not going to hit you with a bat. He loves you. And you're His this morning. Confess your sin. Lord, we come to You. We love You. We want to walk with You. We don't get it all right. We mess up. We fail. Sometimes we get our nose out of joint and we just do stuff. Sometimes we don't even know we're getting into it and we come to our senses in the midst of grieving your spirit. But you love us. You love us. You've freed us. You've released us. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. Thank you that we can come and pour out our brokenness and our, and our mess and give it to you. And you will cleanse us. Deliver us from the notion that we have to somehow buy this with some deed we do. There's nothing we can do. Don't let us insult your grace. All we can do is receive what you have freely given. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name. Amen.